Hello and welcome to episode 11 of All Rings Considered, a read-through The Lord of the Rings. Uh, we are on chapter 11, A Knife in the Dark. In this chapter, we start off in Buckland, where there is an attack on Crick Hollow from several of the Black Riders, and the town awakens in a alert that there are enemies attacking. Um, we cut over to uh, our company, who wake up in the morning to find that there has also been an attack on on the, the inn. Uh, windows broken and the horses fled or presumed stolen. Our company leaves Bree and they make their way through the wilderness, led by Strider, um, and they find themselves on an old ruins named Weathertop. And as they're making camp for the night, they are assaulted by the Black Riders, and the chapter closes with Frodo putting on the ring and being stabbed by one of these servants of Sauron. Charlie, tell me, tell me about this chapter. About the whole chapter? Well, you just told us about the whole chapter. But, I did, but no, what does um, it mean? <laughs> what's it mean? Yeah, uh, I, this is, to me, it's interesting how much stuff happens in this chapter and how far they go in one chapter. We go all the way from Bree to Weathertop. That seems like a pretty great distance. They cross the Midgewater Marshes, and it feels like a pretty sort of action-based chapter. But I like how it ends. It ends with them in this small little dell, camped out for the night. And they just don't have a choice, I guess, just but to camp for the night. And they're on foot, and the riders are on horses. And they just they have to take their chances here. And it gets really creepy and scary as they're all huddled together in this dell, and then they see the writers. Actually, I mean, Tolkien describes it as they don't really see them as much as they feel them. Mm-hmm. They feel the writers on the, the edge looking down at them. That's a really cool image, I think, and really powerful. And, I like that too. Yeah, I, I love that feeling. We've seen this in book one. We talked about it last chapter, and it's just something I've picked up on a lot of book one to me feels like there's a lot of cramped spaces there's a lot of stuff happens in one room the prancing pony or this little dell or frodo's room at crick hollow or bombadil's house or something like this and obviously there's a lot of traveling and stuff too but book one definitely has this feeling of i'm on the you're you you the reader are at the edge of the world you are in this forsaken place in the world this is not where high civilization is making your way just from outpost to outpost. And it's, yeah, it's just a nice claustrophobic feeling sometimes that I think lends a nice atmosphere and feel and texture to book one that is very different, I think, than the texture or feel of the rest of The Lord of the Rings as a whole. And it's interesting, too, how these sort of constrained spaces, even like the fog that Frodo finds himself in uh, in the Barrow Downs, can feel at the same time you're closed in, and like you said, it's kind of a claustrophobic feeling, but but also that you're just beyond that is this expanse where you're very alone. Where, yes, you know. So they see they're, they're surrounded by these these you know these writers at the at the very end. Uh, and great, I'm really glad you point out like how just how creepy that is, and how inclo- you know being surrounded by these you know supernatural you know evil mm-hmm. uh, beings but at the same time there's this 
wide expanse where they are a week's journey away from, you know, where they came yeah. from. They're out in this wilderness where the area that they're in is even disconnected in time, too. They're in a ruins that it's not even a current... Yes. It's not even really a current location. It's a past location. Yeah, and I mean, it, that's throughout book one, right, that they, they are walking through the remnants of ancient civilization. Something I noted in a previous episode was that I was feeling like when we were at the Barrow Downs that they were walking through what I called a very Celtic landscape, as in a, a sort of Celtic Britain landscape mm-hmm. with stone monuments and rolling hills with grass and downs and moors and these things. And I no- I noted that at the time, book one seemed to be having a lot of that Celtic landscape, but not a lot of Roman Britain landscape, so actual stone ruins. But here is where those show up in this chapter. Mm-hmm. You get to walk through these these stone ruins all around them. And so finally now you'd get sort of that combination of Celtic Britain landscape, Roman Britain landscape. I don't know, you know, there's something, there's a really neat aesthetic value to that, I think. It gives it a nice feel of the force, like you said, you are you are lost in time. I mean, this is a place that has been, a place that time has forgotten, right? Right. And I get a sense of like a real world parallel here of walking what it must have been like in something like anglo-saxon england so england after the roman empire has left Hmm. this is what it feels like you have the celtic landscape you have the roman ruins you are in a place that has been forgotten you're in a place that has been abandoned by civilization and you get that feeling here i think especially with these ruins being described at least if not being part of the northern kingdom at least being sort of outposts of it Mm -hmm. there's very much this sense of oh there was this really great kingdom here a long time ago and it's long gone we are just in nowhere well i'll go i'll go off of that actually you know what let's i have something to say about that as well but before we we're kind of near the end i want to skip back to before they Mm -hmm. leave Bree. like right i have just a couple things i wanted to mention Thematically, there is just a, a small thing I like where Bill Fernie, you know, sells his horse, you know, to the company. And it's that theme of evil is self-defeating. So Bill Fernie is really trying to just make a profit and, you know, uh, you know, scalp these people charging the, you know, three times the price of what the horse is worth. But he was also working with, you know, the uh, informants uh, for, you know, the Black Riders. And... So you, you you have this thing where he's, it's really the evil selling itself out, and you know that's just a, and like it can't it help can't itself. help itself. It just it doesn't yeah. can't cooperate. And then another thing I think oh I just wanted to mention last episode you were talking about Tom Bombadil just knowing everybody and we get another example of Tom Bombadil eventually returns the yeah horses that fled the earth ponies rather to Mister Butterbur. So there's mm. just another example of Tom just being this guy who knows everybody. Yes. Yeah, I circled that too. It, it, it's another example of, again, his presence looming large throughout the book. <laughs> Even though he gets introduced pretty early, he just sort of pops up at these other points. Yeah, I think there there are some big picture themes coming out in this chapter, and we're, we're starting to see them. Some of the, I think the big takeaways of the book itself are starting to show up here in this chapter. And I, I, I picked out three, one of which was what you said, evil as self-defeating. We're going to see that a lot as the book goes on, that that 
evil cannot help itself. It's going, it's going to hurt itself accidentally. We'll get that a lot later, especially when we talk about like how Sauron makes his decisions about what to do. He's going to always make the wrong one because he can't fathom what they're doing with the ring. And well, well I guess we'll get to that. We'll see it with the orcs and stuff too. But that's one. Another one. We see the the classic sense of like, the book's question about this addiction to power, mm-hmm. which is kind of what the ring is. It's power and, and what it feels like to have that kind of addiction. If you look at the very very end, you have this line where well, I mean, the writers are in the dell and Frodo. They're coming at Frodo, and he gets the he the compulsion to put on the ring and it's just described as as this here's the line actually uh the desire to do this that is put on the ring laid hold of him and he could think of nothing else he did not forget the barrow nor the message of gandalf but something seemed to be compelling him to disregard all warnings and he longed to yield not with the hope of escape or of doing anything either good or bad he simply felt that he must take the ring and put it on his finger great summary there i think of this question of addiction right. the the temptations i guess that we face and i think that leads me into the third big theme that gets a nice sort of mention here in this chapter which is that theme of what do we do in response to really bad situations <laughs> i was going to say despair hmm. and i actually i should stop saying that because tolkien's going to sort of uh, have a rejoinder against using that word a couple of chapters from now uh, so maybe not despair, but but complete like, terrible, terrible circumstances. What do you do about those? And we have this wonderful bit where, well, before I get into what, well, what what Tolkien does with these characters that are put into really bad situations is that he does not have them act perfectly about it. We've seen this before. I think I talked in like episode two about Frodo being a somewhat a pretty reluctant hero. And he does have impulses to do the maybe grand noble thing and selfless thing, but a lot of times he really struggles with it. And you see that in this chapter when they're they're on top of uh, they're on top of Weathertop actually, and they have they seen? Hold on, I underline this. They were on top of Weathertop. Had they seen the writers yet? I think. Let's see. No, they had not. So they're on top of Weathertop just looking out at the the scope of things, just the land. And the land is barren and desolate and awful, as, as we've talked about. And it says that in that lonely place, Frodo, for the first time, fully realized his homelessness and danger. He wished bitterly that his fortune had left him in the quiet and beloved Shire. He stared down at the hateful road leading back westward to his home. Uh, and actually, that's when he sees the writers. Yeah, now that's... Uh, that's why I was confused by that. Mm-hmm. He sees the writers while he's looking at, at that road back hole. So nice little reminder to us that this isn't just a noble selfless thing. I mean, Frodo really struggles with this. And yet he is still doing it. And I think that plays again into one of these big themes. We talked in previous chapters about, I was noticing this pattern of whenever the hobbits would sing a song. Well, not every time they sang a song, but... Typically, when the writers showed up, it was right after a song had mm. been sung. Like and guess what to... happens here, yeah. right? I mean, he sings Baron Luthien, and maybe there's some... The writers show up mm. after that song. I mean, that's how it seems right. to go. I definitely think there's something going on there. They can almost like pick up on that. So Yeah, good uh, on you for noticing that. Oh, oh yeah. thank you. <laughs> good. I'm glad... 
I'm glad you appreciate me. <laughs> no, um, I guess one more th- interesting thing on that note of like the power of language, or the power of words, I guess is really what I mean to say, how words can have power mm-hmm. and meaning, is something that's going on sort of under the surface here, or maybe behind the curtain of the book. Tolkien talks about Arendel in this chapter, and Arendel is the ultimate descendant, or ancestor, excuse me, of Numenor, kings of uh, the kings of Numenor. So really, Aragorn's descendant too. And that is a name that comes right out of old English poem, an Anglo-Saxon poem that Tolkien knew. And he talks about it being used as, I think it was used as like the morning star or something, but it was meant to be like an angel's name or something, they think. And it was like the morning star in the sky. Hmm. And Tolkien thought that the power of that name was significant enough that he wanted to put it in this book and give it a story. Which is just kind of yeah. cool. I don't know. Power of words there, I guess. Power of names. Just there's something there was some kind of power and effect of that name on him that he thought I need to give it this sort of glorified past. Should we just wrap it up with what are your favorite lines and move sure. on from there? Um well, I think to be honest, I I did not pick out a favorite line. Uh so I had I had two, and one was one I already read where Frodo the one I read earlier where Frodo realized his homelessness and danger and wished bitterly that his fortune had left him in the quiet and beloved Shire. So that one's really good. You can rewind the episode if you're just dying to hear which one that is. <laughs> <laughs> but the other one I picked out was about Erendil. And so Aragorn has been summarizing Baron and Luthien's story. And he ends it with this line. He that sailed his ship out of the mists of the world into the seas of heaven with the Silmaril upon his brow. I think it stands on its own. Beautiful line. It just, despite what GQ thought, I think that's a really readable <laughs> line. <laughs> I mean, it's no, it's no Hobbit, but yeah, I think it's pretty nice. <laughs> well, on that note, we will close for today and join us. Next episode for Chapter 12, Flight to the Fort.